Amen. Thanks, Joanna. Morning, everybody. Happy, uh, happy early Thanksgiving. Thank, thank you, Tom. Let's try everybody else. Happy early Thanksgiving. I can't wait for uh, next Sunday's gathering, our Thanksgiving Sunday. It's going to be awesome just getting together and celebrate all that God has done in the past year. We're going to be hearing from a lot of you. I want to encourage you to make it. And uh, I just want to say, too, I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for the way that you've loved, the way you've poured your heart out, you've poured your life out for this city, for this church. Um, I'm just, I, can I brag on you guys for a second? Yeah, you guys like that? <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Yeah. Because of your generosity, um, this past year we gave enough backpacks away for every homeless student in Roosevelt to have school supplies for the year. Yep. We met and trained for a mentorship program at Roosevelt Middle School, and as of the new year, we're going to be kicking that off. A lot of you guys have, have signed up for that already, so that's going to be coming in January. Some of you guys have learned to set alarms on your phones in the middle of the intros just to make it more lighthearted. I want to thank you for that. Um, <laughs> uh, we just, two weeks ago, we just served an appreciation lunch to the entire staff at Roosevelt, and that was really cool just to share with them how much we love them. Thanks for pouring into our kids. This year, we started two new gospel communities on mission in new neighborhoods that are reaching into those neighborhoods. That's right. Yeah. It's awesome. Praise God. And... Um, City Heights Gospel Community on Mission helped sponsor the City Heights World Cup with the graphs, which brought, I didn't realize how big that was going to be. Oh my Lord, so many kids from all over the world, different countries, refugee families represented coming together and being able to play soccer. Actually, one of the coaches uh, prayed to receive Christ a couple weeks ago, Scott was telling me. It was awesome. Yeah, praise God for that. Um, we've fed homeless living in their cars through Dreams for Change. We've developed uh, discussions with civic leaders about race and renewal. And we've begun training um, new ministers and new GCM leaders to send out and plant more churches because we want to be a kingdom-sized church, not just a new city for us kind of a church, right? Yeah, so this year you guys gave and we were able to support four new church plants in SoCal. Uh, through our giving. So I just want to thank you guys for your faithfulness to that. We're only three and a half years in. We got a long way to go. And um, thank you for allowing your, you know, your hearts to be transformed by the gospel in such a way that in a world full of busyness and other priorities, you guys would take your time and your resources and pour it into the kingdom of God. So thankful to be part of this church. And next week, we're going to take a Thanksgiving offering. Joanna was just talking about that. And you say, what's that about? Well, we want to give more next year out beyond our church, beyond our own needs than we ever have before. And our goal is that this next year, before we cut one check for rent or staff or anything else that we're paying for in-house stuff, we want to reserve the budget for what we want to do outside of New City, for new church plants, for persecuted Christians, for things going on right here in our city. And so that's what next week's offering is about. I want to encourage you to be praying about it. As we, as we near this Thanksgiving gathering, God, what are you putting out in my heart to give for next year toward mission? Something in faith, something generous and sacrificial in the same way that you've been generous and sacrificial for me. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. 
Okay, cool. I wanted to tack on that. Uh, let's, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Judges, chapter 17. Every good book, every good TV series must come to an end, and um, this is the end of Judges. So uh, some of you guys might be sad. Some of you may be relieved. How many are relieved? I'm relieved. It's been, it's been a challenging book, right? It's been hard. Um, and today is no exception. Today is a very, very dark passage, one of the darkest passages in Scripture. Um, in fact, I would say it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie, right? It's just all hopeless and broken and revenge and no hope. Warning to parents, if you have a young child under 13, this may be a good week to acquaint yourself with uh, the wonderful City Kids ministry that we have here at New City. Um, because these stories are just disturbing. Because, and I think they describe what I would refer to as a state of Christian atheism. Because um, these people believe in God, but practically speaking, as we're going to see, they live like they don't. And a lot of people in our world live like that. Maybe even some in our church would fit that category. And as we read these stories, they will probably remind us a lot of our times. Lately, I think most of us, regardless of which side of the political aisle that we sit on, are genuinely concerned about where our country's headed. This has been one of the most turbulent years I can remember. Mass murders, gun violence, racial turmoil, threats of nuclear war, legitimate questions as to whether our justicism treats people of color fairly. A lot of Christians feel like the sky is falling morally. People are terrified to gather around Thanksgiving tables because Uncle Bob might start talking about the gender debates and identity politics and Planned Parenthood and Donald Trump. And even though our country has never been more polarized on more issues, it seems like one thing that the left and the right have in common is that we both think this this country is in trouble. Judges 17 through 21 is going to describe a time very similar to ours, and I hope that it shows you that there's nothing new under the sun and that there is a place we can have hope even in turbulent times like this, all right? Turn to Judges 17. Samson, the last judge, has just died in chapter 16. Uh, chapter 17. By the way, we got a long way to go, so I'm going to be skipping through this, okay? We have five chapters, and i got to keep this to, like, at least two hours, so... <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> So we got to skip through here. So chapter 17 opens with a story of a random guy named Micah who overhears his mom utter a curse against the person who stole her money. It's an awkward moment because it turns out it was him. He stole her money. So he believes in God enough to be scared of the curse. So he goes to her and says, uh, I'm so sorry, mom. I stole your money. Please take back the money. Please take back the curse. And his mom's so grateful that not only does she take back the curse, she also says in verse 4, I solemnly consecrate this silver to the Lord for my son Micah to make an image overlaid with silver. So I'm going to say thank you to God by making a statue of him. Notice, she's not making an image of a false god. This is an image of Israel's God, Jehovah. Verse 5, so Micah made a shrine. And he installed one of his sons as his priest. Verse 6, in those days, Israel had no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there's no ruler, therefore there's no rules, right? 
Everyone's their own ruler. Everyone makes their own rules, right? The first thing about Christian atheism we find is that it redefines God rather than submits to him. What this woman did was in direct violation to the second commandment, right? If, that we not make any images or likenesses of God. Now, let me stop here for a moment because a lot of Christians say, what's the big deal with the second commandment? I get the first one, don't have other gods, but what is this whole thing about not having an image of the true God? Like, what if it helps you worship or something, right? Here's why. An image cannot possibly capture the full range of God's glory. Think about it. God is infinite. And any image we make of him is finite, right? You can't capture the, the glory of who he is. And so inevitably, in your image, you highlight the parts of his nature that appeal to you, or you conceal other parts that don't. In other words, you might magnify his strength, but you might conceal his compassion, or you celebrate his grace, but you ignore his purity and justice. And what you end up with is a, a distortion of God. You end up with God not as he is, but as you want him to be, which isn't really a real God at all, right? It's a uh, deified version of yourself. It's a rejection of God and a choice for yourself. And hand in hand with that, we see what happens next. When you redefine God, you'll start to redefine morality. Look at verse 6. Because there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Just as you redefine God according to your preferences, you eventually redefine right and wrong according to your preferences. In many ways, it's kind of the primary sin of our culture, right? I mean, it's not that we completely reject Jesus. We just kind of want him to be a certain way, right? We have this mental image of him that gets in the way of our relationship. Imagine somebody that walks up to you today and says, hey, man, I really like you. Oh, thank you. you know, I, in fact, I'd like to write a biography about your life. Dude, that's amazing. Wow, thank you. And, and they said, you know, um, but in this biography, you are an astronaut, and, you know, you have 50 cats, and you're brilliant at math, horrible at relationships, and you live in South America. And you're like, dude, that... Um, that sounds like an interesting person. It's not me. You know, I'm scared of heights, and I hate math. I'm okay at relationships. I don't, I'm allergic to cats. And South America? What are you talking about? Right? You might be confused, like, what? You can't just project an image onto me. Why? Because there's a reality here. I am a person. I am a multidimensional human being, right? There's a reality here you need to honor. You guys agree? Okay, cool. It's not always that drastic, but we all do this in our own ways. In fact, every married couple I know discovers somewhere in the first 10 years of marriage that they didn't marry their spouse, that they married a mental projection of their spouse, right? And it causes all kinds of issues in marriage. Oh, you've changed. I don't feel like I know you anymore, right? You never really did. You thought you did. But you married a projection, not a person. You married an image of that person in your head. I'll never forget, Nancy and I are dating. And we walk outside, and her car has a flat tire. So, you know, me being the gentleman that I am, I go over, I get the jack, pump up her car. I don't want my nice shirt to get dirty. Take my shirt off, you know. 18, 19 years old, however old I was. And at that time, I actually had muscles under my shirt. You get under the car, and, you know, I'm fixing the tire, and... I look up, and she's just standing there, like, swooning over me and smiling down at me, kind of creepily. Um, and 
I, I was like, what in the world? Well, here's the deal. Nancy, her love language is works of, uh, works of service. Her dad always did stuff around the house. He could fix anything. The guy was a mechanic. He, was, he, he, he could figure it out no matter what it was, right? So she sees this in me, and she's like, oh, this guy really loves me. Um, here's the deal. I didn't know how to fix anything. My college job was Costco, and they taught me how to change a tire. That was literally, I couldn't even change oil in a car. I didn't know how to do anything. And so, yeah, first year of marriage, she found that out. The truth came out. Who did she marry? Who is this stranger? You don't ever fix anything around the house. I do now. I do now. I've learned, I've learned how to fix five, five things, I think. You, you married people, you get it, right? You get it. Because we all do that in our own ways. We bring competing images of our spouse into the relationship. And when that happens, what happens when they fail? We squash them under the weight of that projection that we had. You failed me. How many of us project an image onto God? How do you imagine God? Like when you think of God, is he... You know, old man up in the sky, some impersonal energy force that moves through the cosmos. See the sky fairy that will give you whatever you want if you do you know, XYZ for him. Some conversations I have with people sometimes sound like Ricky Bobby. You, know, you knew I was going here, huh? <laughs> Dear tiny baby Jesus with your golden fleece diapers, your little fat bald up fists, right? You guys remember that in Talladega Nights? I love what Cal says after that. He goes, I'll tell you what, man. I like to, I like, I'm going to read it. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. <laughs> and this is key. He says, because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. Right? Isn't that what we do? We laugh. I mean, that's funny, but we do that all the time. That's the essence of this second commandment. God is saying, do not imagine me as you want me to be. Do not project your mental image on me, but love me and worship me as I reveal myself, as I actually am, right? So laugh at Ricky Bobby, cry for Ricky Bobby. Don't be Ricky Bobby. <laughs> you end up with a false image of God. You know what that's called? That's called heresy, right? You see this one part of the truth, but you leave other parts out. Once we redefine him, we redefine what he says about right and wrong. The classic example of that is the Jefferson Bible. Most of you probably know about this. You can pick it up if you don't know about it at the local Barnes & Noble or Borders. Borders is closed. Amazon. Go on Amazon in order. <laughs> but Thomas Jefferson, you know, he, uh, he took the Bible and he really liked some parts of it. But there's other parts he didn't like. So he literally took a razor and cut out the parts he didn't like, pasted it all back together, and made the Jefferson Bible. Right? Here's, here's the parts I like. Um, the other parts are in the trash can somewhere. Right? Don't we do the same thing? You know, I love what God says about forgiveness, but that whole thing about the sexual ethic, that's kind of first century, you know. I love that part about giving to the poor, but I won't give to the church. I love that part about God giving you abundant life, but I don't like the way he brings it. I want it in my way, in my time. You have a cardboard cutout God instead of a living God. You have a designer God. It's very fashionable. But he can't challenge you, can't love you, can't save you. 
It'd be like akin to going to AMC and grabbing that cardboard life-size poster of Chris Pratt and bringing it home and showing all, everybody your new boyfriend. You can't have a relationship with it. It's, a, it's not Chris Pratt. When you define... Okay. When you define God and morality as you prefer it to be, you're not submitting to God at all. You're really just worshiping your own preferences. And it's the essence of that, just really quickly, one last example is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? In the beginning. That says, hey, here's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here's the tree of life. Choose your way, my way. And what do we do? My way, the tree. Why? Why? Because we want to manage right and wrong for ourselves. Summary, we're all like Israel. We imagine God as things he's not. <laughs> we're all like Israel. <laughs> okay, only worked once. We imagine God as things he's not, or we ignore parts of who he is. And we bring competing images into our exclusive relationship. We bring these mental projections, parts we've selected, this cardboard cutout. We prop it up and we call it God. But we can't truly love him if we've substituted him for a false image. The only way you can truly love and worship God is to accept him as he is. Let's continue on with the story. See, the second thing Christian atheists do, verse 7. After Micah makes the statue and he puts it in his house, he meets this Levite traveling through town. Now, Levites were kind of the priestly class of Israel, right? So Micah's like, oh, good, a Levite, that's perfect. You can be my priest for my statue of God. It's going to be amazing, right? And the priest says, oh, technically, you really shouldn't do that. But how much are you paying? And Micah's like, a lot. My mom gave me a lot of money. It's going to be awesome. And so the priest says, well, let me, let me pray about it. Okay, yeah, God has told me it's okay for me to be your priest. Um, and so verse 13, Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite who's become my priest. Point number two, Christian atheism uses God rather than worships him. See, Micah assumes two things here. He, he assumes that God exists to serve him, and that if Micah does all the right things, this God is obligated to bless him. He's turned God into a means instead of an end. Instead of God being the main goal of his life, he's using God to get what he really wants. Like, imagine you have a friend uh, a girl who stands to inherit a ton of money from her father, right? And her father's super wealthy. And you see this guy, he cozies up to her, gets in good with her, marries her. And then when her father passes, for some reason or another, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, didn't have all that money. And this guy just takes off, just leaves her high and dry. You'd be like, what a jerk, right? You'd say, he married her for what? For her money. He didn't love her. She was just a means to the end of what he really wanted. Wealth, security, riches, happiness, all that stuff. The problem is a lot of us in our society and even in our churches married God for his money, right? That's, that's what's going on here. The great substitute for true faith in God is this kind of religiosity, and it's built on two premises. God exists for you, and if you do the right things, God owes you. That's called religion. It's transactional. It's not grace. I do enough to get something from God. By contrast, true, true faith says, God, I exist for you. You don't owe me anything. I owe you, right? Is tracking? Religion seeks control of God. True faith surrenders to God. 
Tim Keller says it this way. Because running joke is it's not a sermon at New City if it doesn't have a Tim Keller quote. (laughs) Religion seeks access to God to get him to do what you want. True faith gives God access to your heart so that he can tell you what he wants. What kind of God are you seeking? Let me show you real quick what happens when you shrink God down to the size he can control. In this next chapter, this other group of Israelites comes through and they have more money than Micah does. So they tell the priest, they say, hey man, look, why don't you come with us, grab the idols, let's steal them, and let's go. And the priest says, you've got more money, I'm in. So he just trades up, you know, and they, they start walking away. And Micah comes chasing after when he realizes what's happening, and he's yelling after him, hey, you stole my priest, and you stole my gods. And they go, dude, bro, it's okay, we can work it out. We've got way more swords than you, though. You know, are you sure you want a piece of this, right? And, and Micah realizes that he can't outmuscle him, but he says this thing. Look at this in uh, verse 24. And Micah said, If you take my gods that I've made, what have I left? That says it all, right? That says it all. When you shrink God down to a size you can control, you always live in fear of losing him and whatever you've made him a means to. But... When you surrender to the true God, you quit worrying about all that because you know he'll never lose you. Because you know that he will always give you exactly what you would ask for if you knew everything he knows. So what about you today as you sit here in this ever-increasingly warm room? Have you ever fully surrendered to God? What parts of your life are you still trying to manage and control him? Here's the point. When you reject God and you push him out, it's a slippery slope. Christian atheism always leads to moral anarchy. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And what happens in this kind of climate? Well, it's about to take a turn for the worse. Um, When we reject God as he's revealed himself, when we reject his ways, there's consequences, right? Look at verse 9 or chapter 19. Now a Levite, this is a different one, this is a new story, took a concubine, which is basically a fake wife, from Bethlehem to Judah. So that's a bad start. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. So he goes after her to try to convince her to come back home to him. And, and you know, since he purchased her fair and square, you know, um, uh, it's supposed to be funny. Sorry. You guys still with me? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, to make a long story short, he prevails. So they hop on his donkey. They start the journey back. Verse 14. And the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. And there they stopped to spend the night, and they went and sat in the city square. This is what you would do back before there was Motel 6, right? You would go sit in the city square. Somebody would bring you into their home. They'd take you in. But nobody takes him in. So this older guy finally shows up and says, Hey, guys, um, you're welcome at my house, the old man said in verse 20. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the city square. So they get to his house, and they're settling in for the night, and we begin to see why. Verse 22. Some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door, and they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. Verse 25. So the Levite and the old man took the concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her throughout the night. And at daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down with her hands outstretched on the threshold of the door, and lay there until daylight. 
When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, apparently with no thought of her, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. And when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. What the heck? You see the downward spiral happening here? Are you in shock right now? Are you angry? Good, you should be angry. God's angry. God hates this. God hates sin. Sin is like a wildfire tearing through and burning up his creation. Sin is like a virus destroying us from within. God hates all sin. And note, that's where we're different from God. Because a lot of us, we see this and we're like, I hate that. But we all have selective areas we hate. Selective areas of sin we feel this way toward in our culture, but there's other areas of sin we just really don't care about that much. Sometimes we even celebrate them. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if God is actually perfectly holy, there's areas of every culture that he'd challenge. You know, think about it. If God's perfectly holy, he's going to challenge everybody at some point. So that's why you could go to the Middle East and they would totally uh, line up and agree with the sexual ethic of Scripture, right? But they would totally not line up with the forgiveness and the mercy ethic of Scripture. But if you come to the West, we love the forgiveness and mercy ethic of Scripture, but don't talk to us about the sexual ethic of Scripture. But God challenges all cultures at some point. When we try to trade God for a cardboard cutout and we try to manage good and evil for ourselves, ultimately, this is the kind of stuff that starts happening. Let's see how Israel responds. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. And they say to the Levite, hey, tell us how this awful thing happened. And the Levite explained the whole story to them, except he conveniently leaves out the part where he was scared, so he sent out his concubine, to get raped to save his own skin. And this story provokes an outrage. Verse 11. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. And they amassed this huge army, 400,000 soldiers, to march against the Benjamites. And they demand that the Benjamites release these men, evil men who did this evil thing, but the leaders of Benjamin won't do it. So this massive fight breaks out, and at first the armies of Benjamin are winning. Verse 26, then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. And the Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. And God did. They creamed them, right? They knock them out. But then look at what happens next. The men of Israel go on a killing rampage. Verse 48, the men of Israel put all the towns of Benjamin to the sword, including the animals. And everything else they found, all the towns they came across, they set on fire, and only 600 Benjamites escape, and they hide in caves in the mountains. It's just getting worse and worse. It's dark. So um, a few months go by. Let's look, look at 21. The Israelites, knowing these guys have escaped, they take a vow. They say, not one of us will give a daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. And a few months go by, and people start to cool down. They're not as angry as they were. 
And the 600 guys start creeping out of the caves. And they say, hey guys, uh, our wives and daughters are all dead and we're just a bunch of guys. So we don't have anyone to marry. We don't have any kids. Our whole line is going to die. What's going to happen to us? Well, now they're in a pickle, right? Because the Israelites made this vow that nobody can marry a Benjamite, but now they've cooled down. So they don't want this tribe to go extinct. It's part of their heritage. Verse 2, so the people of Bethel, so the people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, weeping bitterly. Lord God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? As if it's God's fault. What are we going to do, God? Why'd you let this happen? So they, not God, come up with a plan, verse 8, and they asked, when we were preparing to go to war against Benjamin, was there any region that didn't send anybody? And they figure out that nobody came from this region called Jabesh Gilead. So they send 12,000 of the best warriors to Jabesh Gilead with orders to kill everyone there, verse 11, kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. So they did that. And they kept alive 400 virgin girls to serve as wives. But that's not enough. There's still 200 short. So then they say, well, there's this other place, right, called Shiloh, uh, where the women have this fall tradition, and they all run out into the fields, and they do this dance, and none of the guys are there. So, verse 21, go up there, hide in the fields. When you see the young women come out for their dances, rush out from the vineyards, each one of you, and take one home to the land of Benjamin to be your wife. We call that kidnapping. In case you didn't know, it's wrong. It's against the law. It's against God's law. It's against Mosaic law. Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24, both say the punishment for kidnapping is death. God hates this. But everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And so they do it. And then on that note, the book of Judges just abruptly ends. Verse 25, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's it. That's the last verse. What do we learn from all this? A couple things. One, when God is absent, two things result. The strong oppress the weak and people fall into despair. When God is absent, the weak are abused. The inevitable result of casting off the rule of God is redefining morality in a way that benefits the strong. Every time. What runs through these last chapters is a horrific callousness toward the weak. Israel mercilessly oppresses anyone that's weak. Uh, People in the weaker tribes, people in weaker groups, especially Israelite women. Notice what one scholar said, Dr. Uh, Robert Chisel. You can evaluate Israel's relationship with God and judges by how they treat women. At the beginning, it was evil Canaanites like Sisera, remember that? who raped and oppressed Israel's women. But now Israel treats them horrifically. And what's even worse, they seem oblivious to the fact that they're doing wrong. They feel like they're right with God. They feel like they're, you know, they act like they're just trying to do the right thing. But ask, ask some tough questions. Like, for instance, where is this Levi, Levite rebuked for having a concubine in the first place, by the way? Secondly, sending her out in his place when, when people are calling out for a gang rape. Where's he rebuked for that? That part just gets brushed aside, swept under the rug because she's a woman. Where, where's the concern for women that they kidnapped as brides for the men? Where's the concern for the weak, the, the innocent children and women that they killed? 
When you take God out of the equation, the strong inevitably oppress the weak. And let me just say this. I think that's one of the most amazing things about the American Constitution. It starts off saying, right, that, um, that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. The U.S. Constitution grounds our rights not in democracy, not in the will of the majority, which can be fickle, but in God's created order. They're unalienable. What's that mean? It means that they're not subject to the whims of the majority because they don't come from the majority. They come from God. The majority didn't give these rights. The majority can't take them away, right? And that's a good thing. Ben Franklin said it this way. Democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is the lamb having grounds before God on which to contest the vote. So much later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shows up, and he could say that the American majority was wrong in how it treated black men and women. Even though it was the law of the land, even though it was the will of the majority, it still violated the law of the creator. Right? Question for you. If Martin Luther King Jr. only had the will of the people at that time to appeal to, would he have had a leg to stand on? Politically? No way. Our country was so screwed up. But he appealed to a higher law than democracy. He appealed to the law of the creator. Right? So listen, when society or a person dismisses God, then the strong inevitably begin to oppress the weak. Question for you. I want to turn this into an open living room for a minute. Who are the weak among us today? Who are some of the weak among us today? San Diego, 20th century. I'm sorry. The homeless. Huge in downtown San Diego. You know, we're the second largest per capita population of homeless in the United States. Recent statistic I was reading said 20,000 homeless kids in San Diego. Kids under the age of 18. Roosevelt, 5% of the student body here is, is homeless. Um, 80% is below the poverty line. Right. Yeah, what else? Who else? LGBTQ. Yeah. You know, here's the deal, guys. The good news of the gospel is that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That means there's level ground at the foot of the cross. Hold up a microscope to any of us, and we come up wanting. We fall short of the glory of God. But because we've been created in the image of God, every human being, regardless of whether you agree with their lifestyle or not, is entitled to human rights and dignity and love. Amen? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How many LGBTQ kids have run away from home, been bullied, been mistreated by this society, been mistreated in Christian homes? That should be heartbreaking to you. What else? Foster kids. One more. I'm sorry, Peter. One more. Foster kids. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, one in three kids in America will go to bed in a single home tonight, single parent home? And majority of those are without dads. Foster kids, when they age out of the system, do you realize the statistic on how many of them end up on the streets? It's heartbreaking. We should see in their face our kids. What can we do to make a difference there? Peter, undocumented immigrants, catching the boot in this society as of late. People created in the image of God are brothers and are sisters that we're commanded to love. 
You realize how many times throughout Scripture the Bible brings up this triad of people to take care of? It's, it's the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Because in that society, they didn't have many rights. I mean, this, this guy goes into this city as a foreigner, and they do the opposite of that. They don't take care of him, right? How, how can we do a better job of taking care of them? Yeah, that's good. What else? Who else? People of color. That's a hard one for me to talk about because of what's happened in this church with our own family this last year. Many of you guys know Alfred Alongo was shot by a police officer in El Cajon. It's Winnie's brother, right? It's broken time. And, and we can watch documentary after documentary. We can pass laws, but the truth is the laws can't restrain the human heart fully. And those of us, I just want to say this to any white brothers and sisters in this place, those of us who have grown up in privilege, it is our responsibility to fight for the rights of those who have not. Getting passionate. The tears are coming. Yeah. Mm. Privilege and justice cannot be skewed in our direction. It is our job to stand up and make a difference, to march across the bridge with those who are marching. Why? Because of the gospel. Because that's what happened for us. Because all people, black, white, brown, are created in God's image and ought to be treated as such. Actually, and this one doesn't come up a ton, but how about the lost? For us Christians, millions of people without Jesus that are headed to the worst kind of suffering. That all the suffering we could experience here is just a taste of. Don't we, don't we have to be working for them? We talk about them like they're a statistic. 2.2 billion people will die without hearing the name of Jesus. I don't, I don't normally quote Joseph Stalin when I'm preaching. But uh, he said, you know, he's famous for saying that uh, the death of one is a tragedy. The death of a, of a thousand is just a statistic. Right? When did we start taking the loss and just group them as a statistic? Just a number. Each one of those numbers is a person created in the image of God. Lost without him. What, what are we doing with that? And I'm not trying to guilt you here. I'm just trying to say there are those in our society that are needy among us and it's our job as the church to do something about it. Where there is no God, we don't need to be worried about anybody's pain but our own. But if there's a God and then we recognize that each person is created in the image and there's worthy of of dignity and, and basic human respect and they ought to be loved. We Christians ought to speak up for anyone in a position of weakness. That's how you can measure whether or not your heart's been affected by God and the gospel. And I know you can't all be involved in all these areas of need, but as Christians, all Christians give themselves away for the weak because that's what's been done for us in the gospel. It's the sign that you've met God. That's why every gospel community um, on mission in New City Church is supposed to have a mission field that they serve in. Because we, we want to live beyond ourselves for those in need around us. That's why our church is trying to reach these kids in Roosevelt, dealing with almost every category we just talked about is represented right here in the school. Please get involved if you aren't already. And when we see the end of this book and we look at the brokenness around us in our society, it's kind of like a mirror. They reflect one another. And that brings up this final point briefly. When God is absent, we live in despair. 
This book ends, as I said earlier, in a note of desperation. It tells these stories, and it just ends. There's no king. Everyone did whatever the heck they wanted. It starts out so appealing at the beginning. Micah gets to make himself this cool little designer god and hire a priest and play church. It's so awesome. He's got his lucky rabbit's foot, right? And it ends with hell on earth. But there's good news today that this is where the story takes a turn. You see, the book of Judges does not exist by itself in the Bible. It's written, especially these last chapters, in parallel with this other book uh, called Ruth. You know the story of Ruth? Ironically, Ruth is a woman. Um, she's a foreign woman, and she's a widow. So being a foreign woman widow in Israelite society was about the lowest on the totem pole you could go. And in the darkest chapters of Scripture where women, as we've seen, are treated despicably, here we meet Ruth. And her story is this love story. It's full of redemption because Unlike the Israelites and judges, Ruth trusts God in the face of impossible odds. I love this story. Whereas Judges ends in despair. There's no king. Everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. The land is in darkness. The book of Ruth ends this way. Ruth 4.21. And Boaz and Ruth fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, Israel's great king. Judges ends with no king. Ruth ends with a king. And we all know the story. David had a son who had a son who had a son who ultimately led to Jesus. Judges ends with those in power abusing the weak. Ruth ends with a weak outcast who becomes a hero. See, these books are written in parallel. And they show you that where the strength of Israel fails, God will save. Through one who's considered weak like Ruth and an outcast. The king of Israel didn't have, right, the king that they longed for. He's coming one day, and when he came, he came not as one who was strong like Samson, who could muscle up and make everybody obey. He came as one who was weak like Ruth. He would be poor like Ruth. He would wander as an outcast without a home like Ruth. He would win our hearts with love like Ruth so that we would want to obey. And in Jesus' life, we would see this preview of his coming kingdom. A kingdom where the strong will never oppress the weak again. A kingdom where there's no racism, no sexism, no hate, no, no more hungry, no more sick, no more poor. There's a kingdom coming where there's no more prisoners or orphans or lonely outcasts, but there's a kingdom with love and understanding and grace and peace where God will dwell among us. And the Bible says he will wipe away every tear. How did Jesus do it? I'll tell you, because Jesus was the first one. He was the first one ever in history not to just do what was right in his own eyes. The Bible says he always did what the Father had him do. He trusted and obeyed the Father, even to death. And his death would be horrible. It would be a gruesome thing, a distorted perversion of justice like we just saw in these last chapters of Judges. You see, in these chapters in Judges, they're dark and gruesome. It's the result of what happens every time we ignore God and we choose to do what's right in our own eyes. But as dark and gruesome as these chapters were, they're not the darkest chapter in the Bible. The darkest chapter in the Bible is the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, the Roman historian Cicero talked about the crucifixion. He said the Romans came up with a type of death 
That was the most bloody, the most horrific spectacle you could come up with to scare the crap out of anybody who would dare try to rebel against them. And when they would beat people to a bloody pulp where they're unrecognizable, he said that it was, it was not uncommon. I'm just going to get grotesque for a second, for ribs to pop off their body. Most historians nowadays agree that Jesus was partly disemboweled at his crucifixion. It was horrific. And they made it a public spectacle, right? Kind of like at the mall. They would crucify people in public because it was shaming. And grown men would weep and vomit and urinate all over themselves. And all the while, the religious leaders are high-fiving each other for doing the work of God, religion. Why? Why are those chapters so bloody and dark and gruesome? So that Jesus could secure a bright future kingdom hope for us. He was enduring darkness brought on by our sin. He entered into Judges 17 through 21. The price he paid for our sin had to be equal to the horrific nature of our sin. As the old song says, dark was this stain I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you can be today. Why was the cross so bloody? Because the wickedness of our sin demanded that it be. When the enemy came to defile and destroy him, he didn't say, hey, you know what? Take my bride instead. She cheated on me anyway. No, he gave his his life for his unfaithful bride. Instead of sending out his bride to die and then tearing her into pieces, he would give himself to be torn into pieces so he could redeem back his bride and make us all spotless in his sight. Dark is the stain I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you can be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse with it. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Jesus' death not only pays the price for our sin, but it transforms us from within, from selfish, hateful people to graceful, loving ones. You know, a couple weeks ago when the shooting happened in a church down in Texas, is a reminder of the dark, horrific times we live in, but it also reminded me that just the news lines just come so fast nowadays that we forget. I, I vaguely remembered, man, a couple years ago, didn't the same thing happen? You remember um, Dylan Roof shot and killed nine people at Emmanuel AME Church of God? Killed nine African Americans. Do you guys remember the hearing? At Roof's hearing, the families of the victims, one after another, stood up to tell him, what you did, what you took from us, we can never have back. But because Christ has forgiven us, we forgive you. What gives someone the power to do that? It's not just some general sense of morality. It's not just the belief that God exists. The only thing is that we realize that we deserved death and God made himself weak so that we could live. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon 
and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. The last verse of that song says this, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? I don't know where you're living today. I can't read any of your hearts. Maybe you have your own private Judges 17 through 21 going on in your life. And maybe it's not as gruesome. Maybe it's only different by degree, but it's the same brokenness because we, in our own ways, have all redefined God. We all have our own Jefferson Bible. We all have our own cardboard cutout of God. We've all used him as a means to get something we really want instead of an end in himself. Right? That's why I get ticked off when I'm at the shopping mall and I didn't get that parking place. I paid my tithe. Where does that come from? <laughs> Tell you what, if we truly saw God as the ultimate goal in our life, we would be freed to live a life of pure worship. Wherever your life is not pure worship, wherever sin and addiction and brokenness and negative emotions are creeping in, there's parts of your life where you're not seeing him as the main goal. And we've all taken advantage of the week, whether by doing it personally or being part of institutions that do Isaiah says this in closing, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Dark is the stain I cannot hide, what can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you can be today. Let's bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to encourage you to remember that this gift of grace, it doesn't come through religiosity. You can't earn or buy your way into God's good favor. It comes through grace and surrender to what he's done for you. That's what the whole book of Judges is about. It's a king is coming, a king is coming. We need a king. Have you let him be the king of your heart? Have you surrendered to him? Or are you still trying to control God? That's my question for everybody here. Are you ready to surrender? Because I know all of us, if we look deep enough and we really shine the spotlight of God's word on our hearts, we would see there are areas of our life that we still hold on to with clenched fists. And he says, let them go. Will you trust me? Will you trust me that I can do better, that I love you more than you even love yourself? I want to pray. Father, thank you for your grace that frees us to trust you in the face of darkness, that frees us to hope that it will not always be this way, that there is coming a bright future kingdom, that it's not just some make-believe pie in the sky, clouds and harps and angels with wings, but God, you have prepared a place for those who love you, that you purchased our salvation, you purchased our resurrection with your own blood that you entered into the darkest, most broken parts of our story, things we've done to others, things others have done to us. And you brought your love and your grace to heal us. You experienced our pain so that we could experience the favor of a father who loves us. And I pray that for anybody in this place who feels distant from 
God right now, that you would reach down and draw them close, that Holy Spirit, in this moment, they would feel your warmth and your love and your grace transforming them from within. It's a work that all the words in the world can't make up, but Holy Spirit, in a moment you can touch somebody. And I pray that if somebody is here right now that needs to feel your love and your grace, that once free from these broken cycles, God, that you would set them free today. We have a prayer team over in the corner that would love to pray with you. We pray that God would set you free. We have communion over here in this corner for those of you that want to come and remember the good news of the gospel. As often as you do it, you remember that he lived a perfect life in your place and he died an atoning death in your place so you could be pardoned and cleansed. And now you not only are forgiven of all your sins, but you have the very righteousness of God living inside you. You are the righteousness of God. Come and receive that. Remind yourself of that today. If you just want to hang back and sing along, you're welcome to. We're going to close in the next few minutes and send you out with a benediction. But I want you to consider this one question. As we repent, I want to remind you that the Bible says, We've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So as you repent today, I want you to remember that you're not going to be saved by those works, but you are saved for good works. So ask yourself, God, what are you calling me to commit to? As I look at the needs around me and the weak and the hurting and the suffering, not just how can I repent, how can I receive your grace, but how can I be an extension of that grace to somebody else in this city? And I promise you next week's going to be a lot happier and lighter as we share testimonies and take up offerings. But in this moment, will you just let the Holy Spirit minister to your hearts and come down and respond to God's grace?